You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes Dead Air Knife here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1998 masterpiece, Ring. And it is a masterpiece. I will have to say, this is a very serious film. I almost introduced myself as Lydia Peaver or Lydia Chan because it is a serious film. And a lot of people who uh, have a problem with remakes or adore both films equally... Uh, hold this film in very, very high regard, and I can absolutely understand why. I am extremely excited to do this. Before we get into it, I want to talk very briefly about the title, because many people might be confused who are our Western listeners, English-speaking listeners. Most of us would be aware that in 2002 there was a remake of this film called The Ring, and it was hugely hugely successful. It made $250 million worldwide, and it launched what is referred to as this J-horror craze. Not only were films released from Japan en masse to the West, films that had been uh, out for years or just coming out, they, uh, a lot of these films were remade uh, like within years or sometimes even months of each other. It was this uh, really incredible experience, but that all started when this film got a lot of success, and it is known in Japan simply as The Ring. We in the West would know it as Ringu. The U was added to differentiate it enough from the remake film. So when you went to your local video store, your blockbuster or whatever, you would see the two DVDs sitting next to each other. I have the DVD that you would have seen right next to me. We don't have a camera on it, but I can show Lydia. And there's the widescreen edition, the original movie that inspired the ring, Ringu. It's a, a actually a really beautiful and simple cover. And one of the things that I love about this DVD and the reason why I won't throw it away is the DVD menu music. Oh, sometimes, Lids, and I'm not joking, I just have the DVD menu music playing in the background because I can't find the song anywhere else. But Hmm. that's the distinction. So if you are are, are an English speaker, you would know this original film as Ringu, but it is simply called The Ring. Now, listen, listen. You can call it whatever you want. Just don't call it late for dinner. (laughs) Oh my God, that is a good dad joke. I I am surprised you've already started into dad jokes, quite honestly. (laughs) When I had interviewed Ali Nanami and Sadako Yamamura, when I had interviewed them about their roles in Sadako versus Kayako that had premiered on Shudder ages ago, uh, it was a a translated interview, of course, because I do not speak Japanese, unfortunately. And I had been conscious to not refer to it as Ringu during that conversation, even for the translator's sake, just so I wouldn't come off as as uh, disrespectful in any way, because it is known as Ring and the book is called Ring and it would be more widely known in Japan as the Ring if to an English speaker 
more properly. And it would just definitely show that I had only known of it as Ringu because of the American version of the ring. So I was just conscious of that fact at that time. And then I'd somewhat forgotten it because we're so used to calling it Ringu here. And so many people only differentiate the two by the ring and Ringu, which is how we had had conversations heading up to this particular show and in planning to do Ringu and the ring and Juan and the grudge for anyone that's looking forward in <laughs> uh, spotted pictures, dead air, what's to come. That's what's to come slowly, but surely we'll be getting through those films because we wanted to for quite some time. Wes, why have we not talked about ring? It's me. Uh, as Taylor <laughs> Swift would say, I'm the problem. It's me. Um, so, gang, you might know this. I got a lot of hang-ups. I got a lot of personal issues. Uh, I'm not always the most confident person in the world. I sound very confident, but but I'm not. And I almost was embarrassed to bring it up. And the reason why is because this I love this film so much. I am such a diehard fan of this movie. And I was just, I was scared. I'm not joking. I was scared that Lydia would say no and it would hurt my feelings. And so I never wanted to do it. On top of the fact that when we originally conceived of this show, I didn't really want to talk about really big horror movies. And so when I wanted to talk about J-horror, if you go back into our discography, if you go back and look at previous episodes, you will see that I have done everything and anything to talk around the ring by bringing other films to the table. Films like Pulse, films like Dark Water, films like, um, what else have we done? Uh, this uh, Carved. Lots of J-horror that we have done and all amazing films worthy of discussion. But for some reason, the biggest of the big, I kept... No... Maybe I should... Maybe now's the time to suggest doing The Ring. No, Lydia's not going to want to do it. It's too cliche. or I don't know what I thought, Liz, but it was me. And... Gang, I need you guys to understand. I at no point ever fucking uttered or even suggested this to Lydia. So she never shot it down. She never said no. We've been doing this a decade and I'm still kind of scared of her. Like she's the, 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 the girl in high school that I want to be friends with, but I think is too cool. And that's what, that, that's what this is. Which is insane in a way because we've definitely brought really cool titles to the table outside of japan as well or like the host we've mm -hmm. abnormal beauty was one of my picks and uh, a very underappreciated film and sick nurses which was a splatter fest and we talked about macabre there's a lot of chances we've covered a lot of films from overseas a lot of horror from overseas and we love it and we both do talk about the ring. We bring up the ring. There was a time when every episode we were bringing up the ring, the American version of the ring. And it was like to the point that we were like, oh my God, we're going to have to do the ring. Ha ha ha. And we'd laugh it off and never talk about actually doing 
ring, the ring, Juan, the grudge. Movies that we definitely have alluded to while talking about other Asian cinema. Is Asian even a proper word? Should I not be saying Asian? Asian works because that is where these films are coming from. You've mentioned films from the Philippines. You've mentioned films from Korea. Uh, like uh, sick nurses yeah, and stuff Thai like that. Thai film is really Thai, important to us. Uh, Dream Home, that was from China. So yeah. there's, we've been doing stuff from uh, all over uh, that area of the world. And, and I think that uh, it, it's high time that we sat down and we talked about the one that is largely known for bringing this to Western attention and showing us a new way, a new sensibility of how to tell horror stories. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up my little darling, Whispering Corridors. That is a film from Korea, which I love very much. And that was a hugely successful horror film in Asia and contributed mightily to them putting more serious thought into Japan and other countries, putting focus on these ghost stories, these types of slow burn things. Because one of the things that I, I you know, Japan and Asia in general is known for, when you think of J-horror, you think of stringy haired ghost girls. You and I and horror fans know this is also the, the country that would bring you Tokyo Gore Police. Or, or films like Grotesque, uh, stuff like that. So, you know, there's a wide variety of different types of horror that are coming out of this country and this area of the world. But Ring is the one that has become synonymous, rightfully or wrongfully, to that area. And uh, I'm just, I'm, I am just bursting at the seams to talk about this. Can I share a story about how I first saw this film? Absolutely. And I will share a story after. Like we're we should talk about the ring at another episode, but I'm sure that we'll have a little bit of crossover because yes. I'm just gonna guess that your first viewing had something to do with the ring. Correct. So the 2002 remake of the ring was my first foray into this story. Like a lot of Westerners, I'm not gonna sit here in front. I didn't watch a grainy VHS copy from Japan. I didn't download anything. I saw, I went to Blockbuster and I saw the remake. This film, I didn't see in theaters. I remember it coming out in theaters and I remember people telling me, oh my God, this is so scary. 2002, I was in high school. I was high school, uh, Wes, and I had liked this girl and she wanted to come over and sit in the that old basement in uh, Alta Vista Drive and wanted to rent some movies with me. And we had gotten The Ring. She had seen it already. And she was like, you gotta watch this movie. You, you, I'm telling you, this is the scariest fucking movie you've ever seen in your life. She had this funny habit that Anytime that she would watch a horror movie, we needed to get like a comedy as a chaser so she, she wouldn't be too scared after she watched it. I know quite a few people who are like that. So we get back to my place and we sit down, we pop in the old movie, um, but she doesn't want to watch The Ring first. She goes, you know, uh, can we watch the, the, the comedy movie first? And I don't even remember what it was, but I was like, yeah, okay, sure. 
and so we watched it and then then it was time to put in the ring and we watched the ring and i would say we made it about five minutes into it and then she was like you know i'm really tired I, i'm gonna go home and i was like we watched the we rendered these two movies to watch together she's like yeah i know but she revealed to me later that she uh, was just too scared to watch it again. And so she just went home. She just bailed. That's fantastic. <laughs> so I watched the rest of the film by myself and I really, really liked it. And because I was like, well, fuck this. I rented this damn movie. I'm going to watch this damn movie tonight. That was the plan. That's what I was going to do. Then I want to say a few months later, the movie network was showing Ringu. And so I said, oh, and I think I might have understood before that time that it was, that the ring was a remake. I don't know if I actually did though, but I watched this and it was my first ever, ever experience watching a foreign language original of a remake I had already seen. And so I became instantaneously fascinated with this film and looking at the differences. And when I went away from it at the end of watching Ringu, I thought to myself, well, that was a lot slower and they didn't explain as much. That's weird. I, I felt very clear on what the story was with the Ring remake, but I didn't feel as clear about this. And I thought to myself, well, it's a good thing I watched the remake because I wouldn't know what was going on. I wouldn't really understand what this uh, Sadako character was all about. What, how, her powers didn't make any sense to me. I didn't understand what the videotape was. I didn't understand anything. And so for the longest time, I would have, I said, well, I like both films, but I prefer the remake. And then gradually over time, as I got a little bit older, I started exploring the genre a little bit more. I don't want to talk too much about Zhuan and my experiences with that, because I'll save that for when we're actually doing it. But I will say that this fundamentally rewrote my expectations of horror when you're telling me a ghost story. And as I've come to realize at the age of 39, <laughs> every J-horror movie, every ghost story movie, I am constantly and maybe forever looking for the feeling that I get when I watch this movie. No matter what, everything will play second fiddle to this film. I always, I and there's something about the scenes, there's something about the way it's shot, there's something about the measured storytelling. I can't quite put my finger on it, but this is the standard and I compare it to everything else, particularly if I'm talking about Asian ghost story films, I am directly putting it up to, do I like this as much as I like The Ring? Do I like them as much as I like The Ring? See, I had a similar experience in that I watched the ring the american remake first and i loved it absolutely loved it before that i had been introduced to a little bit of j horror and i had watched juan and the grudge because someone had mentioned how the grudge had scared them 
uh, a seasoned film watcher too and the grudge was so unsettling so i had rented them both by the time i, I was late coming to see the ring it was well past its theatrical debut i had also been introduced to a little bit of extreme horror film and i had watched uh tokyo decadence a very famous pink film which mm -hmm. is not horror but it has some horror scenes uh well before that a uh, very strange extreme exploitation erotic mm -hmm. film yeah for those of you when lid says a pink title a pinky title that is there's some boobies in it that's the there's a minimum nudity requirement in pink titles in japan exactly a, a minimum nudity requirement there is a lot of that and it is a, a mm -hmm. an s&m film uh to put it bluntly so i wasn't you know i wasn't i knew that the ring was a remake and i was interested in renting them both and i found rangu boring and i you know it was part of that like well they didn't describe as much and i like the story and the way it unfolds Although I will say that I found Ringu far more relatable because it is a family story where you tend to forget <laughs> that the the mom and little mister in the ring are actually <laughs> like a real family unit. That that family care and that family unit and that nuclear closeness is sort of broken down by their coldness and the coldness of that film and the coldness of everything, the coldness of Samara in that film, where the coldness of Sadako in this is what binds these families together. And we get to see some real mourning. We get a lot of more traditional take on family values in Japan as well. So I, I really appreciated it for that, but I found it slow. Like you had said, it's slower and it is slower, but at, with age, and getting used to the the pace of a lot of J-horror and Asian cinema, especially when some of our favorite films are slower paced. And that's another reason why we don't bring a lot of them to the show. And a lot of other podcasters probably have this thing is like, it's too slow. It's sometimes too slow for one of the hosts. It's sometimes just too slow. Or it's sometimes, you know, you feel bad telling people to watch this kick-ass movie that you love so much, like A Tale of Two Sisters, which is very slow right and it's not really upon watching it again uh it's really not slow i don't know what sort of michael bay bullshit was infecting us at the time that we were deciding that ringu was slow because <laughs> it's really not it's it got a decent pace it's a beautiful film actually and it is very atmospheric there are some pivotal things missing so to speak that we'll get to uh, that i that i prefer the way mm -hmm. that they did it, the way they handled it in the remake, but especially near the end of this film, but I, the, there's nothing wrong with this pacing. And it is a really, really enticing slice of life into the life of a working single mom at this time and a reporter. I always mm -hmm. do love the take on the life of a reporter working for a newspaper. Love that. Uh, so I, I do have a, a newfound appreciation for this, although it was really they had their values. I did prefer the remake better, but like you, you know, maybe there's there's more to be said for the original ring. I think that when you're discussing the ring, now it can seem so quaint. VHS tapes and CRT TVs, Polaroid cameras, 
having to go develop film, the way, the video editing systems that they're using, literally not even using microfiche, but archived newspapers and showing the measured pace of investigation and how this story could only exist in 1998 and be as perfect of a film as it is. Because at the time of this release, this would have quite seemed quite savvy. A lot of technology to handle something that is older. And Sadako is this new type of entity using new media in order to communicate their tragedy and their anger and their curse. And combining that with the rumor mill that is so prevalent, there's so many, there's so much folklore, there, there's so much hearsay, there's so much, I mean, the film opens with girls telling each other a rumor they heard. And that in and of itself is, is, is so organic how they incorporate the technology into that. Now, when you look back on it, oh my God, it is this cozy little snapshot of a world that I think is so easy to forget because now when they try to show you something, it's the 90s, it's the 80s, they just slap the fucking shit on your face like a veiny cock. Like there's no, there's, there's, <laughs> there's no obnoxious musical skin uh, or stings. There's no obnoxious flaunting of technology. This was just the technology they had available to the time to tell the story that they needed to tell. And I find that so comforting in a weird way. Am I off base here? Am I fucking making any sense, Lids? No, that makes a lot of sense. And they're not slapping you in the face of the veiny cock of fashion either, because I find that that's one thing that I really, that bothers me to a certain degree about all this throwback nostalgia filmmaking that's going on right now, is that everyone's talking about their clothes all the time, and they're always dressed like rodeo clowns, basically. And it's not indicative of what I remember from that era at all. And in this, like you're spending some time in Shinjuku, you're spending some time in fashion districts, and these are uh, some fairly fashion forward people in the group of the cast of characters that we deal with in Ringu, but they're not like talking about their clothes or flaunting it. It's just what they're wearing. And, you know, you could say that it's all um, very natural, almost mise en place, dress setting and costuming because it looks like these are just natural clothes that they would wear and bought off the rack so it's not like a fashion forward movie but that's kind of the point that you get to see just naturally what people were wearing around that time in a fairly fashion forward center of japan and i really like that because if you were to do a real remake of this right now people would be dressed very differently and there would be drawing a lot of attention to it the the soundtrack and the music the score like you said it's not all of these uh hyper processed um moog inspired stings it very subtle extremely subtle although there are some stings when they do the freeze frame kind of bit it doesn't stand out the way that people would make it stand out if they were to be reproducing this effect which they do and speaking of reproducing, I mean, how often have you seen reproductions of Sadako? How many long-haired girls crawling out of things, be it TVs or wells, 
that you've seen in other films or on the Simpsons or wherever this film has been reproduced in so many ways. You're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, just going back to the score, I will say the most 90s thing about this film is if you go, if you watch the credits, there is the 90s of 90s little trance ditty that plays underneath it. And yeah. I remember every time that song plays at the end credits, I always have this thought, well, this is very different. I love the song, but it's so... <laughs> yeah. It's so it's out song, there. It, yeah. it reminds me of, you know, like I'm listening to Halcyon or, or, or something like that. Just some sort of like early to mid 90s stuff. The, the, the one last thing I'll say about the remake. Well, maybe not the last thing I'll say about the remake. But one thing that I wanted to point out was even in 2002, VHS tapes were on the way out. It seemed a little archaic to be using VHS tapes. And I remember because I, when I watched this, I didn't rent it on VHS. I, I had a DVD. Uh, we got a DVD of it. I remember thinking, oh, that's very funny. Like, like why VHS tapes? And But it wasn't so, even in 2002, still a lot of people were still using their VCRs. So it wasn't completely outlandish. As the film franchises progressed over the years, they still go back to the VHS tape. They've explored using stuff on the internet. They've explored uh, you know, even going to like antique stores and, oh, what's this? A VCR. Let's see if we can get this working both in uh, Sadako versus Kayako and um, also in the more recent American remake, Rings, uh, they it, it, it kind of like tracking down a VHS is one of the growing concerns of, of what the film is. But I think that kind of adds to the mystery of it. It becomes like finding... Uh, an old reel-to-reel -reel player or something like that, that like Evil Dead or something. But um, fuck all that, Liz. Fuck it all to hell. What is this movie even about anyways? It is about sometimes when a ghost is trying to communicate with you, you shouldn't do what you think it's trying to make you do. It could be a trickster. It could be a demon. So you should just... You know, maybe not listen to it, so to speak. And maybe your decisions are going to be tainted by the way you think, especially if you're a crummy mom, <laughs> like our lead character here. You're going to have a, a particular way that you are going to interpret the communications of said ghost. And what you're going to do is probably the worst. <laughs> to be fair, I don't know if she's necessarily a bad mom but she does have a little boy that resembles a ventriloquist dummy so i think that i think that maybe she's a little scared of him uh but she is a a workaholic i want to start off I, I know we normally go in sequence but i really want to dial in to the opening sequence of this film um i think without hyperbole this is one of the greatest openings to any horror movie I have ever seen. It lasts seven minutes and 56 seconds. And within that, we get everything that we need to know. And one important distinction that I want to talk about is how throughout this film, you are going to hear variations about what this rumor is, a variation of this story. There's going to be details missing. There's going to be some added. There's going to be some ignored. And it helps you realize that 
even the people who know about this cannot distinguish from fact or fiction, from rumor and reality. And I think that this game of telephone, no pun intended, is extremely powerful stuff. We have Tomoko, a teenage girl and one of her best friends, telling a story, or her friend is telling Tomoko a story about a tape that you watch, and that tape is cursed, and then you die in seven days, and someone calls, and they say, you're going to die in seven days. Tomoko then says that, well, just so happens one week ago today, we have we watched this tape at this cottage that me and my friends went to. She plays it off as a joke and they laugh and it grows this tension throughout this scene. Now the tension here is not drawn out excruciatingly, but I think that there is a, there is so much in contrast here. The creepy story, the two girls interpretation of it, the long, extended period of phone ringing before someone has the courage to answer it. It's just mom and dad. They're at the baseball game. The baseball game, which keeps showing up, by the way, on a TV. And then you have the the ultimate payoff, which is so fucking vague about what even happened. You just know something's happening, but you don't know exactly what's happening. And this is all contrasted in this beautiful cozy home and these girls that look very comfy they're wearing hoodies they're they're just having a nice evening a nice evening that any teenager would have and it sets off that this young girl tomoko just so happens to be related to our journalist our main character of uh reiko and she is going to take her son yoichi to what is now going to become this girl's funeral at the house. And it's the perfect and cleanest setup. You're a journalist. My daughter just died. Why did she, kids don't drop dead like this. Can you investigate it? And again, we're like less than 15 minutes into the film and we got it. We're good. We got the story. We got the story and we're intrigued because not only has one girl died, there's been her friends have all died that had watched this. And the one survivor is has gone insane is in an insane asylum uh, or someone who had discovered one of the bodies. So not only do we have the story and like what it is our journalist is chasing and why she's interviewing so many teenagers and and cornering uh, schoolmates at the funeral to be like, what do you know about this rumor? What do you know about this curse? What do you know about this videotape? What did they see? Have you seen it? Where was it? Like asking all the journalistic questions. And as the story unfolds, we learn that not only is it that you watch the video and get a phone call, it's something about the way that the bodies are. And they use more of this technology um, more available to someone in a journalism setting, especially TV journalism, where they can zoom in and slow down and speed up and enhance audio of all of these things. So we get to see some things that the general public aren't privy to within this film, like what the bodies look like when they're found. Uh, Tomoko's funeral was closed casket, which was odd, apparently, if she had died of a sudden heart condition, which was uh, how it was played off for most well-wishers. But 
she died with a look contorted look of fear on her face and so do all the other people who end up dying from this cursed videotape within seven days so it it adds another level of intrigue that not only is like okay yeah there's a curse there's a death note basically problem happening where people are dying of sudden heart attacks it's much more than that and we get to see that within the snippets and the journalistic investigation that the ant is doing and i really like the iterations of the story that we hear the first one in the girl's bedroom and then we hear another one from the journalists themselves discussing what the kids are talking about interviewing school kids that aren't related to that group of kids that have another group of friends that they heard about that had watched this tape and it's all focusing in on the these cottages so we'll know we'll go there eventually but in the meantime we have her ex-husband <laughs> who adds another level of intrigue to this because he is a sensitive he's a psychic and he gets an immediately weird feeling when he visits his ex-wife and his son, I suppose, because it's hard to discern at first if it is even his son because they regard each other with such distance. It's very true. Ryuji is her ex-husband. I think that when you first are introduced to his character, this is after Oreiko has gone to Izu with the Izu Pacific, which is this it's, it's just like a, a mountainous cottage. Uh, you rent cottages and you spend a weekend or whatever there. And he's so incredulous to this idea of a cursed videotape. And one of the aspects of this film that I continuously forget is that he's supposed to be psychic to some degree. And he's aware of that. And she's aware of that. And because... Yoichi is his son, that boy is also psychic and feels compelled by the the spirit of Tomoko to go into a room to and and has this weird connection to Sadako. But yet he's like cursed videotape. Unbelievable. You're crazy. That is ridiculous. I may be just a run-of-the-mill psychic photographer, but I do not believe in ghosts and goblins. I don't care how much we frolic in brine. Goblins will not be thine. Um, I, I just, I've, I've always found that really hilarious. And I can't tell you, Lids, how many times I've watched this movie where you get to the point in which Ryuji is demonstrating the psychic powers when they're, you know, we're cutting, we're jumping ahead, but when they're in Oshima, um, I'm like, oh yeah, I fucking completely forgot. Yeah, no, because he is the voice of reason from the beginning, even though it is established that he is sensitive to these things. And if there's anything ooky spooky going on, that he will be the first barometer of that. But he's also like, you know what? It's a videotape. Someone must have made it. Let me analyze this and has her make a copy uh, I do like the, these first viewings of the tape because we as the audience get a viewing of it when she watches it in the cottage. We get to see what the original first viewing is like. And it is somewhat creepy. I was just listening to Horror Hound Radio. They're talking about gore films and the uh, beginning of gore in horror cinema. And they had mentioned that 
there is some parallel between experimental black and white old films like in Chandelou, the Dali film where they slice a girl or cow's eyeball in one of the first like gore exploitative gore scenes. And even though there's nothing necessarily gory in this little film that is found on a videotape in ring, it is uh, reminiscent of student horror films, unsettling avant-garde um experimental film so i can see why he would be like someone's someone made this it has some effects that we can identify as effects it has some david lynch qualities to it so it's an interesting little tiny film the second viewing where he watches it in her apartment uh she's not present she leaves the room much like your friend who didn't want to watch the ring again (laughs) she just doesn't want to see it or i guess it's it's such a in her mind, like a personal thing to curse yourself by watching Mm -hmm. this. And I guess it goes over our heads at first and they don't really mention it that the phone doesn't ring. Like they look to the phone, it doesn't ring. So I guess we, we know that maybe he's too psychic to be cursed or something like that because we don't really know at this juncture. All we know is that two people have watched it. One might die in seven days. I'm glad you brought up the phone not ringing. Before we go into that, though, I'd like to back up just a little bit um, to talk about uh, Reiko, or Reiko, excuse me, in the cottage. I there is two scenes in this film that I am in awe of as somebody who just loves the vibe of this movie completely, and. Weirdly, it's not the most famous sequence. This sequence with uh, Reiko is incredible to me when she's in the cottage. This uh, The actress, by the way, Nanako Matsushima, she has a lot of heavy lifting in this film. Tons of the scenes, particularly early on, require her to be the only character in the scene sometimes without any dialogue or her and one other character who is only ever going to be in one scene. Towards the end of the film, Ryuji has a much larger role and, you know, she's with her grandfather a couple of times and, and she has many scenes with Yoichi, but, like, for the most part, she is by herself. And in this one scene in the cabin, I am always struck by the fact that I am literally watching a woman sit by herself in a living room and just sort of nosing around. I'm just going to pick up this uh, journal and I'm just going to read it. I'm going to put it down. I'm going to sort of sit back on the couch. I'm going to like lay off to the side. And yet I cannot take my eyes off her. I cannot fucking, I do not find this sequence boring at all. I find it one of my favorite parts in the film. And I just would be remiss if I didn't, really talk about this first viewing of the tape when she finds the VHS tape. Again, it's such a quaint uh, idea when she's at the Izu Pacific, they have, you can rent movies because they have a TV and VCR there. And there's this one mysterious tape. Where did this tape come from? This origin of the tape is explained quite directly in the remake. The idea that it was a blank VHS tape that 
Samara Morgan is able to imprint her psyche onto. That is part of her ability as like an evil psychic girl. Um, in this, you would assume it's much the same, but that was one of the things that I remember pointing out to myself. Oh, well, it's a good thing I watched the remake. Otherwise, I would never know where this tape came from. And that's something that I would be hanging on to, like, grim death. Like, where does this tape come from? I don't get it. I don't get it. I need this explained to me. When you're young, I feel like you are a lot more of a literalist. I'm still quite the literalist, I'll be honest with you. But I tend to be able to let things go a lot more as I've gotten older. And this is just something that I remember really sticking on. I couldn't get past that they never explained where the tape came from. Now that doesn't bother me. And at the end, they sort of pass it off with, oh, it's imprinted with the mother's anger. Okay. That's a very uh, high-level, vague explanation of how it came into existence and how it's been spread uh, like to be on another tape in Izu. Like, where where was it for the decades between the time it would have come into existence and it ending up as a <laughs> rental <laughs> at this uh, resort cottage? So it's it's really vague. It's super vague. So I'm with you with I'm glad that I knew how this tape yeah. came to be because it just would have seemed far fetched, unfortunately. So two major differences that us as an English audience who saw the remake first versus this. One, the images on the tape are different. There are some similarities, but the images I would say, you know, like in the um <clears throat> In the remake, there's there's like a, a millipede, there's maggots, there's it's a lot more nine inch nails than it is um, this, which is a, a lot more subtle. And I think th those are just things that you would have to incorporate because they're just lost in translation, right? There's also like this big thing with horses and stuff like that that's in the remake. The second thing is Sadako does not have a catchphrase in. The remake, it's she goes seven days, which is not present in this film whatsoever. You get a, a, a tone when Reiko um, answers the phone that rings. This is the only time in the entire film that when somebody watches the tape, the phone rings. And I find that fucking fascinating. And I was doing some research online trying to figure out what exactly is going on here and i'm wondering if you're right the sensitivity or psychicness because the two other people that watch the tape in this film have those powers they don't get a phone call but it also could be part of the rumor mill because uh tomiko's friend said she calls you and then she says you're going to die well raiko's experience is they call you, but she doesn't say anything. It's just a tone. And Ryuji experiences no one calls at all. And Yoichi's experiences no one calls at all. So what are we to believe here? It's very, very interesting. And I just think it's just this nebulous quality of the curse. And Raiko figures out that you have to be on the island is what she supposes that elicits the phone call. So if you're not on the island, you don't get the phone call. But we don't have real proof of that because at this point, which 
has me begging for an answer of what happened in the decades between the time this tape was imprinted and it sat. Um, like, did it just sit gathering dust until someone watched it? And the first people to have watched it could not have been those teenagers because the rumor had existed like a ghost story, like any Japanese folk horror for quite some time before these teenagers watched that film. It's Folk horror doesn't take place within uh, a week. You know, it was an established story that school age children told one another for some time before these initial deaths that we're privy to. So something must have gone on in the meantime that people knew the machinations, knew the rules, like slit mouth woman rules. Those rules existed for a very, very long time before we saw the first death in the movie <laughs> that was based on that that folk horror. So it, it's very weird to me that we don't get any background on other deaths established or the real rules. And yeah, the rules change on who's telling the story because it is passed down folk horror, urban myth at that point for the bulk of what we get to know about the rules. The only person able to prove the rules to us is Raiko. So it's, it's, it's neat watching them work through it, but I can it is confusing to the audience member as to why aren't these people dying? Are they, like I said, just too psychic to die? <laughs> too weird to live? I like that. I like that a lot. Um, when we get into what the bulk of this picture is, you get to see Raiko and Ryuji realize what has happened to them, the distortion of the photos, everything that's going on. They are trying to do research into this uh, into this curse. Who made the tape? Who is Who are the people depicted in the videos? Where did it come from? I wanted to get your perspective because uh, when I was watching it today, uh, I was thinking about what you would think of this movie when you were watching it. And you are a journalist and you teach journalism and you are also uh, quite familiar with, with the horror genre and, and the impact. But like, I wanted to like speak to you as, as Lydia, the journalist, how do you feel about watching these old methods of trying to track down a story, having to, uh, have like an assistant, like do research, contact the school. Like, can you figure out this? Can you figure out that? It's such a slow process. It's a somewhat slow process, but it is more thorough and it is actually fact checked and your, uh, your leads are vetted. So it's not just someone tumbling down a, a, a Google rabbit hole to write a story which, you know, there's a lot of the, the speed, the 24-second news cycle, as it is, that can be gained from more of these electronic news gathering tactics that we're more familiar with now, especially with the widespread advent of the Internet and all the newspapers being online. You don't have to physically go somewhere to do research in the annals of archives of newspaper and journals of record. So... You don't have to actually find people who know where these things are. You can click a button and find most of them. Although there is a huge, a huge gap there. We'd like to think that every newspaper stories online 
it's a very, very, very small percentage of them. We'd like to think that every photo ever taken is online. It is a very small percentage of them. So even though you could probably, if you printed out every single thing on the internet, you would probably be able to duplicate the size of planet Earth. I'm just throwing statistics out that make no sense and are not vetted. So yeah, but let's <laughs> pretend... It seems to me that there's about that much information on the internet. Maybe two Earths worth if you printed it all out. It still does not equate to the amount of information through history, let alone oral practices that are not recorded. So there is a real need for traditionally trained journalists. And these tactics will never die and should never die. You need to have assistants, fact checkers, researchers, notebooks, and physically go and see things for yourself and ask real human questions to real humans. So I love all of that. Because those sorts of things in real uh, hard boiled journalists never die, you still go to find the original newspaper. And you still go to find original photographs or knock on the door of the families of a victim to speak to them about what they were like and see their bedroom. Like there are journalists out there still pounding the pavement the way that they ought to. So I do really like it. And it doesn't really speak to me as much of a throwback to older tactics of journalism. It is a reminder that those are the true tactics of, of good journalism. So I really like what she's doing, although she is also following a hunch (laughs) and she's following the hunch of a mother with some hangups. And I like that as far as a storytelling tactic, but it would be the job of all those people around her to sort of check her as she goes along. And nobody really does, which I really like. I wish that no journalists, I wish that they could run amok unchecked with their hunches and leads, but no one really says to her like, whoa. Dude, haunted videotapes. First of all, that was eloquently put. Very, very, very fascinating. And uh, I, I like definitely learned a thing or two. This is why you teach uh, journalism stuff, because you're good at explaining it. But <laughs> I am so glad uh, you brought up this like romantic version of a journalist. When I, as someone who did a bit of journalism through broadcasting and stuff like that. And like, you know, I, I I did the news, but that's very much, you're a guy in a chair and information is fed to you. I never, I don't go places to get information. I relay information that has been gathered already with my voice. That's what I do or did. This is this idea of, oh, your job is journalism, which means you go to an office with no supervision and you just What's the news? What's the story? What are, like and you just you just you just sort of are left to your yeah. own devices and then seemingly at the end of a week or however long it takes after driving all over the country and and getting all kinds of cool interviews and uncovering a mystery, you just write like a big old uh sexy fucking piece that gets blasted into the the paper and meanwhile, you know, all your money is comped and you get a fabulous paycheck and 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 you just have like this, um, like I said, romantic sort of swash, uh, swashbuckling uh, adventure lifestyle. You're like Indiana Jones of information. That's what you do. You just gallivant around and you get stories and scoops and 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 you meet cool people. And I was going to say, 
um, oh, wow, this is actually a pretty realistic uh, example of journalism, I feel like. And now now when the, the way you say it, oh, I guess it's not very realistic because it's kind of like, did you just drop all your other stories? What were you doing? Like, you can't just be like, well, my niece died and my uh, sister says that there's something to investigate because it's a mysterious death. So I'm just going to track down and follow my niece's life over her past seven days to figure out why she died and why a bunch of other people died. That's what I'm going to do. Those skills come in really handy to help your family out with little things. Like if somebody is curious about why some building was torn down well, the building next to it has been abandoned for 20 years and hasn't been, you know where to go to find that mm-hmm. information out. And if there's a death in your family, you kind of know the channels to uh, get more information if somebody needs it more than uh, are the common people who are not journalists. So there is something to be said for that. But yeah, what happened at her news desk? Why wasn't she fired for taking off for all of this time? And you know, the one thing they're not doing throughout all of this is taking care of their son. <laughs> and and that maybe it's a modern day thing where other people around you would call the Children's Aid Society or something. Like, sure, she does rely on the grandpa, but there's a lot of times where Mr. Latchkey Kid robot child is home alone. He is a little puppet boy. That seems very self-sufficient. He is wearing his regulation Japanese boy pants and his hard plastic backpack and walking around with what looks like a Casio keyboard, but I can't say for sure what it is. I don't know if it's just a hard boxed pencil case. And you see Reiko um, make dinner for him and shit like that. But no, yeah, like he's she's constantly just leaving for hours and hours. And you assume that he's at school, but he's not there all day. And because of her negligence, Lids, her son watches the tape. This is an aspect of the film that I was curious of your take on. My take on it is overall what Ring is a story of is death by appointment. It's beautiful and brilliant in its simplicity. But the other thing that I think is why you think, or not you, but we collectively, everyone, a lot of people, think that the original is more slow and atmospheric is because essentially they're telling you Sadako's coming, but not yet. You, you, you got seven days. <laughs> and they, they, they build the tension by giving you the date, which I love. This whole film takes place during September. So it's a good time to watch. It's rainy. It's getting cold kind of dark um it's very good to uh to to have that tension building but sadako ain't coming for seven days that is a given you know that the 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 leader of our 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 narrative here reiko is going to die now we've seen tomoko die we've seen the aftermath which is effective it lets you know it's it's almost um a drag me to hell scenario. You know what the end result is. And so you can, oh my God, here it comes. Here it comes. It's a good narrative technique to have. If you have a death by appointment, it's good to see how this thing actually kills you. So you know what's in store for our protagonists. But then they introduce this, I suppose it's not challenging, uh, 
Yoichi watches the tape. Now, he says that uh, Tomoko asked him to. Now, the uh, whatever, like, that is probably has something to do with the fact that he's slightly cyclically sensitive and is probably, it was probably, I've always assumed it was Sadako who tricked him into watching the tape because she just wants to, like, spread her curse. But um, this ramps up the tension in a way that I, I think it kind of falls into... Well, mama bear stuff. Well, now my son's in danger. And so I was like, was it not enough that her own life was in danger? And now Ryuji, she also cursed Ryuji. Is that not enough? Or is there, did this seem like a necessary or unnecessary plot point? What do you think of it? Oh, I think it's absolutely necessary. And I think that um, in in defense of her workaholic mom chasing leads or i'm assuming that she chases leads when she's not like on a wild goose chase of a personal nature um being a hard-working mom with tight deadlines and long hours that there is that fear especially with somebody who covers uh maybe more violent cases or like a child psychologist who has case files at home or a crime scene photographer that has photos at home or a cop you know uh the fear that their kid is going to get into that stuff we see this trope in a lot of films but i think that it is the most effective here with having this cursed object that the kid watches or opens i really enjoy that and i think it's it's necessary especially when a lot of the people that are cursed with this take it you know, quite seriously or not serious enough. Like the teenagers sort of joke about it and they're sort of nervous about it and they don't believe that they're going to die, obviously, because they go to make out points like there's nothing going on at their appointment for death or are hanging out at home with a friend joking about it at the time that they're going to die. Then we have, on the other hand, somebody who's taking it very, very seriously and is maybe saying without saying it that they're looking for a cure for this curse but then we get little robot mannequin boy who we all are quite enchanted with because of his nature and enchanted with because of his solitude he watches this tape and nothing happens which where nothing seems to happen so I think that it really works to counter the other two extremes where we have teenagers that are like man cursed whatevs uh, to, oh my God, I'm cursed. I need to fix this and I need to know everything about it because I'm a journalist and this is the way my mind works and I need to chase this lead and maybe save myself if I'm lucky to a uh, little psychic boy, little automaton boy who watches it because he was told to by the ghost of his cousin, maybe, where his father even says, She's not who she was now that she's dead, at least. Like, there's another vagary. As far mm -hmm. as the vagary of where the tape came from, it's another vagary of who was actually communicating with little Yoshi to have him watch the tape in the first place. Or was it just a case of mom's not around, dad's never around, I'm curious about what my mom does and what she keeps in this locked box, so to speak. Even though it wasn't in a lockbox, but I'm thinking about like police officers with their guns <laughs> <laughs> or police officers with their offices and detectives with their offices where they keep all that stuff they want to keep away from their young children. So it could just be like that natural inquisitiveness wanting to be part of mom's world 
or the ghost talking to him, which he could have made up, psychic kid or not, he could have made that up to cover for the fact of, I just miss you, Mom. What is it with your fascination in my forbidden closet of mystery? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that is sort of what's going on. But I also have the inkling that if that tape would have been in the player in Tomoko's room when Yoshi came in during her funeral to just see her room or was drawn there by her ghost, whichever way you want to look at that scene, he would have pushed play. I, I, I tend to agree, actually. Um, yeah, I, I suppose you put that into a different perspective that I hadn't really thought of, which is why I like talking to you, Lids. I, I, I like uh, I, I like thinking about this from every angle. So uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the actual analysis of this film, which when they slow it down and they really slow it down just after when they're showing a, a sequence of the thing, we get a phrase that they can barely make out. But uh, I alluded to it or I, I jokingly did it yesterday or, or earlier, but I'll, I'll say it properly now. Frolic in brine, goblins be thine. That is an audio that is detectable when you superanalyze this VHS tape. And it's a saying. It's their first specific lead that can tell them where this tape might have come from because it is a regional dialect of the island of Oshima. And that is makes sense, all the water imagery, the fact that there is a sequence in which people are seem to be suffering from something and we find out that it's a volcano uh, the a, a volcano island. So per, there was and then they find out that Oshima had a volcanic eruption many, many years ago, decades ago. And that will bring our characters to this place. Do they give an actual origin for Frolic in Brine, Goblins Be Thine? Is it part of like a larger verse or is it simply the 1998 Japanese version of Fuck Around and Find Out? (laughs) It is that. Fuck around and find out. Like if you're going to frolic in brine, like what do you expect? Goblins, dude. That's what you get. Ryuji will encounter an old man sitting on the beach. This old man who is, uh, shall we say, quite intimate with the story of what happened with Sadako all those years ago. And he will say that, yes, if you frolic in the sea, you will die. This is that phrase. It's unique to the film. Or at least when you are researching this phrase, I did. Before we did this episode, I, I, I did a little bit of a deep dive in the only references I can find to it at all, at least in the English side of Google, is in reference to this film. So I believe, unless someone wants to correct me, I believe that it might be unique to this film specifically as a way to steer our characters to the right direction so they can find out what exactly happened in Oshima many years ago. And this is something that I wanted to bring your attention to. There's a flashback sequence. Once we get there, we find this hotel that they can stay in and they find out that this very hotel has all kinds of images from the cursed videotape itself. And all the vantage points of this videotape are also from this location. 
And we get a sequence in flashback when we hear the story and Ryuji touches this old man and gets his... This is the most... Oh, I see. You touch people and you have like this clairvoyancy in which you can get a whole... Essentially, you can watch a flashback psychically and and now we, the audience, can watch a, a, a flashback. I wanted to say, do you find it interesting that this is also connected to journalism? Because this traumatic event was the fact that Sadako's mother was a noted psychic. She was famous. And she would essentially go around and do tricks, essentially, like demonstrating her psychic powers, her ability to read minds. And so there's this huge press junket with a whole bunch of old-timey journalists, you know, with their box cameras and and you could probably speak more to like the technology that they're using but this is like 40 50 years ago and again it starts with kind of journalists i just find that very interesting i don't know if that's meant to be a theme or not oh it's definitely a a theme and i think that not only are they kind of painting journalism in a bad light with having this not very present mother <laughs> who's chasing leads and not actually doing her job. And they have the same problem in the remake too, which is great. They didn't drop that theme um, of what the press can do to a person and destroy their life or tear down a claim. And it's not a new thing. It's definitely happened in a, in a lot of cases and it happens maybe more quickly now that we don't really remember the people whose lives have been ruined by media exposure um, quite as readily as something like this fictional take on it. And it does seem to be pretty realistic, although it is uh, quite dramatic, the reaction of the press to have them all yelling, basically a a witch hunt (laughs) sort of sort of moment happens in this press conference. There would definitely be some believers sitting in the audience that would defend her. There would be a little more decorum and crowd control for sure. But perhaps it is like a satanic panic moment coupled with the the uh, electrified atmosphere that there can be in a scrum. Even though it's a sit down press conference, they, it all of a sudden becomes what would be more popularly known as, as a scrum where you're surrounding the the person who you want to get your soundbite or your video clip of. And they were collecting exactly that. Maybe not so much with the video. I don't remember seeing any video cameras in that scene. But they had Marant Systems, which is a, a recording system to record the audio of your interview. They had uh, cameras and notepads, typical journalism tools there. So it was like a bona fide press conference that all of a sudden turns into a satanic panic witch hunt moment that ends spectacularly with the death of one of the journalists all of a sudden due to a heart attack. Nothing to do with the mother and her psychic abilities, her Yuri Geller level uh, press conference that was going on because this is precedented. This has happened many times before and it happened even more so in the spiritualism movement, although we don't have as many records of these sort of press conferences where people would prove their abilities. Yuri Geller is probably the most contemporary one I can think of because all other people with psychic abilities have been 
they have reality TV shows or whatever. They're the Chris Angels of the world, and no one can take them seriously ever. And I think the last time we took a psychic seriously was Yuri Geller uh, with his bending of spoons mm-hmm. and stuff that was all tested, and that's what is going on here. So it really is a throwback to even 15 or 20 years before this movie was made when the last time we had a press conference like this. But then that didn't end up in a witch hunt screaming pitchforks and torches and a sudden death of somebody who is struck dead in the crowd from a heart attack. Brilliant stuff, really brilliant stuff, because it is that fever. It's the same sort of hatred that we see toward the the journalism and the media as we got with the death of Princess Diana, which is probably the single most horrible thing that has ever happened as a direct result of paparazzi. And some people would like to separate traditional journalists and media from paparazzi. And in most cases they are, especially here in North America. But in some countries, that is how news is gathered. People are ambulance chasers and are quite in your face, direct, maybe violent, and do and say whatever they want to get the story and to get it first. So I don't know what the news world is like in Japan, especially not in 1998. It seems to be a mix of that diehard paparazzo approach to journalism coupled with what we're more used to seeing with the calm, cool, collected press conferences surrounding Yuri Geller. So, I mean, it it seems like a stretch in some people's mind, I'm sure, to liken this to the death of Princess Diana, but it's also, in my mind, the closest parallel. That's very interesting. I wanted to bring attention to a line of dialogue that they say on their approach to Oshima, where they say... They're discussing uh, uh, Shizuki, that's, that's Sarko's mother, and um, the tragedy that happened with uh, and and what was going on, and uh, the story about uh, the death that occurred in this uh, journalist's uh, scrum and stuff like that. They say, yes, well, the media hasn't changed much in 40 years. So they directly... They directly comment on what you were just talking about, and I think that your your uh, comparison to um, to Princess Di is very apt because it, again, at the end of the day, what's paparazzi if not just a fucking media circus, right? That's what they would call it, and be and just because they're like not talking about politicians or some sort of event or or some building being built or torn down or whatever the fuck or some natural disaster doesn't really change the fact that it's this um at all costs getting the information that people want and in that chaos and confusion this person is killed and then tragedy happens from that this in a way being uh, this doctor who found Sadako's mother who wanted to show her off caused all of this chaos and commotion. And I think there's also a little of like, there's a little uh, bit of, it's a small village. Like it's a small community. It's on one of the islands. It's not from the mainland of Japan and, and stuff like that. So you don't, uh, you, you can kind of combine that new and old sensibilities, even though it's not like, Oh, here's like a here's a here's a small, humble village of Oshima, where 
traditions we still have we still believe in the old tales and we still believe in these things again no it just goes back to media and technology and stuff like that because it's not like these people are out in the fucking middle of nowhere it's like not that far it's a ferry right so it, it so i just find all of this stuff like very interesting and the more i think about what it has to say about media and information and technology how we let that into our lives and what can come of that it's this idea of this little girl in this family becoming victims of, of fucking people who want to use them to get famous and to get wealthy and to become renowned, this doctor. There's even more darker connotations in the original novels and the manga because uh, Sadako is depicted as, as is older in those stories and there's even like an assault nature to what happened to her in this tragedy. They they get rid of that for the movies and it really kind of comes down to, well, you know, she's killed by this doctor. That's what we learn. And Sadako becomes this um thought of this uh thought of as this horrible victim. And so we get one of the, the inklings of this famous twist in this film that is always kind of my favorite types of twists and probably the thing I love most about this film. They really go hard on it in the remake, but in this it's a little bit more subtle, but it's ultimately the same thing. We'll get to that in just a second because after they get all of this information, they get the flashbacks, um, they find out that Sadako is the one that killed that journalist during this uh, 40 years ago. But, oh, maybe she was scared. She was a victim. She was a son the other thing. Uh, we now know that we can go back to wherever that well is. And where is that well, Lydia? That well is at the Izu Resort. I love this. I fucking love that... And I remember the first time I watched this story, it would have been the remake, but also in, in watching Ring as well, it would just be, I can't believe she was sitting on top of it this whole time. And that explains why the tape was there. That explains why the presence seems so ominous. And that is the reason why they have to go back. And... Then it begins the sequence where we got to get buckets. We got to get shovels. We got to get all this kind of stuff. We need to literally race against the clock because we're down to the last day before Ryoko dies. And we got to go to that well. I like the tonal shift here, too. It's at night. It's rainy. They're yelling at one yes. another. They're frustrated far beyond they have that they've been to this point in the movie. Um, otherwise, this movie is predominantly shot in daylight or in people's homes and in the comfort of one or two people on screen or one person alone in comfortable, clean, modern surroundings. Now we are underneath uh building with dirt and muck and water and noise and darkness like it is very very different tonally and the moods of our characters are very different as well as their relationship has 
at one point they had been quite estranged yet friends, you know, amicable breakup, I suppose, of two kind of robotic overworked people. And then they got kind of cold and pushed apart from one another and then pushed together in a still remaining fairly cold to one another sort of way. So their their relationship has has become a little more elastic for us too. So I, I really do like that tonal shift. So if somebody had come in in the first like 20 minutes of this movie and watched the last 20 minutes of the movie, it would seem like totally different worlds, but I like it. And the way that we got there is very organic. And the panic is setting in because we've had this, not only have we had the date said to us, told to us by text on the screen, much like The Shining, how many days are passing? Not like we have a D-Day in The Shining necessarily. We sort of do with knowing vaguely how long it takes for the boiler to overheat. But we we have that and we have that in Hell House as well. Just how many days they've been in the house is broadcast to us in text on the screen and very clear. Uh, that's happening here with a real countdown to D-Day, to Death Day. Um, so I, I really do like that. We've also had another timing tactic we as the audience have seen this film a couple times now we've seen the cursed film by watching this the cursed film changes and there is the shot of the well that is what the film ended with at the the first viewing and then we get to see a hand coming out of the well and then we get to see sadako climbing out of the well sort of like beginning to come out of the well something's coming out of the well we know that it's sadako because we've seen this film a couple times but upon first viewing you there's something or someone coming out of this well and we know that if we see it again as the audience if we get that treat of seeing it again not only is a someone probably going to die but b we're going to see what comes out of the well and at this point we know that it's Sadako. So to have them there on the D-Day, this is the last day. This is the last time we, were pro- we would see text on the screen. We have an idea. Mm-hmm. It's not, but we, <laughs> we, we think that it is. They're very tense. It's a very scary, tense-ridden scene with like motifs of horror with the storm and the water and the screaming and the, you know, the impending doom. And the fact that they're in the well that we've been seeing someone crawl out of time and time again, slowly but surely, uh, it is far more tense than most people would give it credit for. It also has this overwhelming sense that we're winding down, that we, okay, we've had the discussions in Oshima, Sadako's mother killed herself, the doctor took Sadako, the doctor killed Sadako at this well, the well's location is at the Izu Resort. The cottage was built on top of the well after it had been sealed, and there she has laid for four decades. And we got it. We had a mystery. The mystery is solved. And now the biggest mystery of all is, why do they feel they need to take a couple of feet out of the water of the well before they start just looking in the water. What What is the purpose of that? I've never understood why they're draining the well with buckets. I don't really have an answer for you. I mean, 
Ryuji is down there. He could have pawed around. He would have stepped on something. I'm sure the ground felt unsettled under his feet or squishy, perhaps. Or maybe there was just too much debris. They never really explained to us mm-hmm. why. Uh, why they need to take water out of the well for the benefit of us. So we get to see Reiko get um, defeated and overtired and exhausted and finally succumb to this uh x amount of days that she hasn't been sleeping or eating food or whatever so like for the benefit of us and the tension building perhaps is the number one reason that they need to on paper take water out of the well but maybe and just maybe this is just like wild guesstimation maybe the body of samara wouldn't have presented to ryuji down there not like maybe his psychic abilities were a threat to a certain extent um, as we get to know the true nature of Samara's wishes at this point, maybe if he would have found her or touched her, he would have clued in to what it was that she ultimately wanted here. Because uh, I, I said in the intro, uh, sometimes a ghost is a bit of a trickster, to put it lightly. So maybe she was hiding from him to a certain extent, as as best as a corpse could hide. Um psychically hiding from him perhaps and he thought there was maybe nothing down there maybe they expected after all that time to find nothing or perhaps there were was a lot of debris and branches or roots or whatever there would be down there and they couldn't tell wood from bone and they wanted to drain the water it's not really described or explained to us at all but they get to drain the water and we get a really cool scene out of it they do really get a a cool scene out of it i this um image of the skeletal Sadako is really good. She's really gushy. She's got that green slime. Her hair is still somewhat miraculously intact. I don't know how much a body disintegrates in water over 40 years. I know uh, you'd be looking for teeth would probably still be around. I know that they had mentioned that there was claw marks and nails that had um, been wedged into the rock face of the well because she had tried to climb out several times and pulled her nails off in the process. She was clearly down there for a little while. I know that in later sequels, they even try to imply that she just never died. She just like lived in that well indefinitely and then became some sort of monstrous creature. There's that type of lore. But as we're speaking to this film in and of itself, you know, she um, she doesn't die. And perhaps it's something supernatural. You know, it's something um, something that, uh, you know, is related to the fact that, that she is a cursed ghost at this point. But at the end of the day, they find the skeleton. And Lids, wouldn't you know it? It's all we needed. We found it, and the curse is broken. You've saved me. She turns into a, a, a beautiful girl and ascends up into heaven, and nobody dies. Credits. Just like Woman in Black. <laughs> Just like Woman in Black. I am very much reminded of films like this, and this is the first time I ever remember seeing it. I'm not saying it's the first time it existed, but this is the first time... I'd ever seen it, and it's become my favorite fucking trope in ghost movies where you 
you do the research, you do your library scenes, you get your hypothesis, you figure out how this person died, and you get it wrong. You get it so very (laughs) wrong. And the film's masterpiece really is how effective this storytelling is when you realize that they have got it wrong. And we don't understand what's going on anymore because everything that we knew about this story and everything that we knew about this curse makes no sense. Rayako doesn't die at a quarter after seven when she's supposed to die. The next person she showed that tape to was Ryuji. And this is the most famous scene in the film where Sadako finally makes her appearance and crawls out of the TV. None of this stuff, by the way, is in Koji Suzuki's original novel. The TV, the VHS tapes, all this kind of stuff. This is the the sort of genius of this film. And this sequence has become just iconic. It is up there with with the POV shot of Halloween. It is up there with the bed scene of Nightmare on Elm Street. It is as famous as Frankenstein walking through the door frame backwards and turning around to that big reveal. It's the doors of the twins in The Shining. It is Sadako coming out of that TV screen. I'd seen this recreated, like I'd mentioned several times in other films and TV, but I thought recreated in real life at uh, Fan Expo in Toronto. There was somebody who was dressed as Sadako that had uh, three uh, assistants with them. And it wasn't like a paid cosplayer by any means. This was just a regular girl (laughs) (laughs) who decided that not only do I want to go as Sadako, I'm going to need a TV. So I'm going to also need a platform to have the TV on that's dressed up like a living room. And I'm going to have to have people that will wheel it around with me in it because that's my costume. (laughs) Wow, what a life. But she was crawling out of the TV in almost a frame-by-frame recreation of this crawling out of the television and it was so cool it was so effective and it was so fun to crouch down and get photos of her over and over again crawling out of this tv because she recreated it several times each day uh that she was at fan expo and it was so cool to see i enjoyed it very very much maybe too much so yeah this scene is so effective and so cool and it doesn't even matter what the effect looks like you know the effects of people reaching through televisions has been done in other things. It's been done quite famously in a lot of other horror film and exploitation film and Cronenberg films. So we've seen it done different ways. This one kind of will never die because of the nature of VHS tapes and the look of that grainy film. It can stay exactly as it is. It doesn't have to get any better, her coming from the television. I really enjoy the effects used here. They're very effective. The look of her. And I know how much that janky body movements get you. Mm-hmm. I, I really like her level of janky body movements. Her level of hair-covered ghost face. Uh, her staring eye. Now, I really like that it's not too over the top. And it's not too, mm, like, tempered theatrical. 
there is a certain amount of body acting going on here, but not too much that, you know, you or I could replicate this, which I kind of like. I also do like it's very unsettling in that we've been waiting for this moment, but I don't think we wanted it quite like this. We wanted to see her come out of the well, didn't we? All this time. There was, you know, it was just, it's so hard to think about it now because her coming through the TV is so iconic. But it never fucking occurred to me that she would be coming out of the TV when I first saw this film. Even though TVs kept flicking around, oh, it's a ghost. It's fucking with the the lights and the technology. And that's just what, it's just there to unsettle us. But no, she is going to come through the TV screen. And that has become this trademark of this character. And one thing that I, I think is really underestimated, when you go back and you watch a lot of haunting films, like The Haunting, um... And, and some of the older uh, Changeling and stuff like that. You watch some of these older uh, ghost movies, with the exception of things like The Entity. But when you're talking about ghost movies, you're like, well, what are the ghosts even really doing? Like, what are you? Like, what are they actually? <laughs> what are they aside from making noises and presenting themselves to you? What's the threat? Like, what? Like. What's what was to be scared of aside from well this is weird that's not supposed to be well they throwing dishes around and shit like that like who cares you know poltergeist uh, that was very different they're like well steal your little blonde child but this was like so terrifying because at least conceptually because oh I this ghost is gonna come out here and how they kill you of fright of some sort of psychic attack in the book it's a disease but in in this it just seems to be fright that the, the, you are contorted in fear in the remake everything's a lot more grotesque a lot more you you seem to die the way that Sadako died you become bloated and disfigured and gross like you were scared and uh, exposed to too much water also in the remake that last sequence is extremely intense. She flickers and she can like jump around. She herself is an entity of static and uh, video almost. Um, in this, it's it's a lot more bare bones. And I remember when I first watched this version, I was like, well, that's less spectacular than how the remake ends. The remake ends with such, you know, bang, zoom, and whiz, pow, that I, I found it very exciting, and I felt this was more low-key. And even though I still think that the remake's ending sequence is cooler, I think that this also lends itself so much, because throughout the entire movie, Sadako is just this entity that is coming, it is coming, it is coming, and then she is here, and it's awful, because you're like, oh, what is she doing, what are you doing, what are you doing, what are you doing, what the fuck are you doing? Like... Like, why is she moving that way? And the, the way that Sadako moves, as you were saying, that is just how ghosts move now. That is the, that is <laughs> yeah. the uncanny value. When I was young, remember, I was like, you know, 18 or 17 or 18 when this movie came out. And I remember talking to my brother. We were watching, uh, I can't remember if it was uh, The Messenger or, or something like that. And there was like a, twitchy ghost 
girl crawling around the ceiling. And I was sitting there with my brother and I'm like, why do they always do that now? Why? And my brother just said it very simply. He's like, because it's so unnatural, Wes. That's not how humans move. And so when humans move this way, it tells our brain that we're looking at a human, but it's not moving in a way that we can recognize. It taps into our, our lizard brain. On a deep psychological level, like I was saying, the uncanny valley. But everything springing forth from that owes itself to this scene. Everything. Even, you know, the, the, the herkiest, jerkiest mover of them all, Kayako from Zhuan, she didn't do it first. Sadako did it first. <laughs> and this end sequence is so incredible. And it brings us to the twist the secondary twist the solution what did she do differently she is standing in ryuji's home sitting in ryuji's home trying to figure it out ryuji then appears in a sequence that i find very cool he is now the pointing person with the handkerchief on her a second time in which she first she sees somebody through the reflection of a tv screen the first person she saw in the reflection of the TV screen was Sadako herself when she first watched the tape. Now she's seeing Ryuji cursed and killed by the tape. She made a copy. What do you think about this aspect of the film? The solution to the problem? The Shyamalanian <laughs> twist. I, I like it. I mean, it, it fits. It works. It's elegant. It is... Mm -hmm. modern as well i mean there's nothing more that a good story wants than to be told and this is the story of sadako who wanted not only like maybe it is like that basic thing of i want everyone to know the whole story and the truth of my maybe father that killed me um or maybe it is just i am a revenge hungry ghost full of bloodlust that wants to kill as many people as possible one of the two could be true i don't know which one it is because i don't know <laughs> i feel like she's a little unknowable although we get to spend a lot of time with her in ring zero ring birthday uh you get to you get to see uh, her fuse from a little girl into a girl like a girl from college and a little girl sitting in a, in a cabin they fuse into one evil being it's, it's weird it's weird the gang the sequel's are buck wild. There's there's a sequel in which Sadako fuses with a giant cricket. And I'm not even joking. It's the same when when the two meet in Sadako versus Kayako and it's the same with the grudge films. They do get really out, out of left field. But like in this in the world where it's just Ring, where it's just Ring, it's hard to discern what it is that she ultimately, why she ultimately wanted this, why she wanted to be free and why she wanted to be spread. Why is that the way to break the curse? Like a chain mail yeah. letter too. And those are known worldwide. So I guess it really works whether somebody gets the whole story in air quotes there or not they get the idea of a chain letter of, oh, you have to send this on or bad luck will follow if you want your $1,000 or you want your whatever wish to come true, you need to send this on. Uh, chain letters are so weird. It always struck me as so very weird. My grandmother used to get them from time to time. And like, it, 
I, I wish I would have saved them because they are just weird. Um, the idea is weird, but it works with this because it's a an idea that we can all understand and nod along with and be like, yeah, yeah, I get it. It's like a chain letter, right? So I like that. The one thing that is missing in this, in my mind, that they do show in the remake is we see her realize that she can save her son by having him make a copy. And she says as much. And that's the end of this film with her realizing that. But in the remake, we do get that extra step of seeing him make the copy. And I like that, aside from the other iconic scenes in other film, having little Yoishi make the copy or of like little American <laughs> puppet boy in the remake getting to see that helps because whether you you know love him or hate him he's an adorable little tyke and you kind of want to see him live because he doesn't deserve this uh hell brought down on him by his mother or sadako whichever one you want to blame so it would have been so much so nice to see him handing a copy of a tape to someone pushing the button uh on the record thing at his mother's work or or whatever something so that we would have proven to us that he made a copy, not just that it was a great idea of hers. Uh, well, all of that would be explained and more in the sequel. The The interesting thing I wanted to point out about Ring is this uh, this was released as a double feature along with uh, the, the double. The other movie was a direct sequel. It even has a lot of the same cast sort of interchanged uh, and, and shit like that. The, the dude who plays Ryuji is in it. It's pretty weird. But anyway, um, it didn't do well. It was one of those things where here's two movies. We don't think either one of them is all that great, but a double feature, it'll be bang for your buck. We'll get your butts into the seat. And the first ring was so popular, so made people so happy that its sequel, uh, Rasen or Spiral, uh, they just took it out of theaters. They're just like, eh. and then the director, Hideo Nakata, the director of the film that we're talking about, Ring, uh, to go, can you guys rewrite and do a new sequel? And that would become Ring 2. Uh, again, goes in a wildly different direction. I think that this goes back to my original interpretation of this film when I was a teenager watching the Japanese version for the first time after already watching the remake. I feel as though what I admired less then and more now is the fact that the remake really is going to explain this is what's happening. This is what's happening. And there's no interpretation. And one of the best scenes in the remake is the little boy saying, why did you do that? Why did you set her free? And you say like, she doesn't sleep. And you get these recordings of Samara. She's just an evil fucking child. Like she's just bad. She does not like people. She wants to kill them. She has psychic powers and her adopted family killed her because of the shit that she was putting into their minds that caused her adopted mother to kill herself and all this kind of shit. It's just, I love this concept of like a hideously evil little girl. There is no fixing it. She likes to kill you. And now that she's dead, she is her psychic energy. Her residual psychic energy is wants to continue to spread and kill. And that's it. 
That's it. That's all. That's a good movie monster mm -hmm. that's clean. This film kind of just keeps it open as to like, well, it's Sadako's rage. What happened to her? What happened to her mother? What happened to, to, to everybody? And she wants to spread her message. And then also we're going to show this to our, to grandpa, but I don't know. Like they seem to be like, I want you to do something for you. It's like, so wait, are you just going to let grandpa die? Because let me tell you something. Not a lot of survivors from this movie into the sequel. <laughs> like, um, uh, I think uh, Reiko's uh, credit in the sequel is like special guest appearance. So <laughs> um, it's, it's actually kind of unceremonious. And in a weird way, as much as I love this franchise, as much as I love all these movies to varying degrees, the one that I find myself going back to again and again, I have watched it in, in its entirety with mute on as we've been recording this uh, film. And I literally just finished watching it. And then when I saw the play button and we were recording, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to watch it again. Um, after all is said and done, I just love this fucking movie. I love the remake. I love the original. This is in my easily my top 10, but probably even my top five horror movies of all time. And fuck just horror movies. Top five movies ever. I love this fucking film. And I was just so delighted and excited to talk about it and i hope i i hope i don't come off as over gracious or 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 you know like blowing the movie up more than it deserves but i just think it can't be a, like a, a film that launched a, a thousand ships that like reinvented the genre because even though the phenomena of j-horror three four years it in the West, it was huge. Like you could, like I had friends that owned video stores. You couldn't keep that shit on the shelves. The latest uh, Tarden Asian Extreme film to come out immediately, people clamored and wanted it, and it blew up, and then it went away, as things tend to do. And the fad was over. But now, twenty years later, every fucking ghost film is deeply informed deeply informed by this you can watch the what bly manor and uh the 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 hill house stuff that's on netflix and come on all of these ghosts all the conjuring movies everything that they're doing there is just so many aspects that i recognize from this but they'll never be this lids lofty praise from wes dead air night <laughs> lofty praise no i get i get that and it like i wouldn't say it's in my top five and i it, as far as all films though yeah it's very high up there i have some very important pet horror films and it's odd that one of my favorite villains is also just pure evil yes. michael myers so i do really appreciate that too she reminds me quite mm -hmm. a lot of michael myers just just hate filled just wants to kill force people of nature um yeah, and I, I really do like that in a villain. And these, both the remake and this film, are just really good films, whether you like horror or not. And it reminds me somewhat of The Changeling, where it's not a film that uh, horror film fans really hold in as high regard, but fans of mm -hmm. film hold it in mm -hmm. very high regard. And The Ring 
fits in there very much so and it is probably the most polished example of eastern film that we had had in 1998 as well so just very well put together very well scripted very well acted very well lit very well everything film like it's a great film it's a very high production value film it did only garner a portion of what the american blockbuster the ring did in box office but it was very good and it created a cultural phenomenon not only around the world with this particular style of ghost but there is a chibi fashions of sadako all over japan for years and probably persisting now where you can get all sorts of very cute little plushy keychains and she's featured in commercials um from childish and comical to serious she threw the first pitch at a nationally televised baseball game which i guess for those who really know the film can see the irony in that um but those who can't just they're like oh it's sadako she's here how cool she's my best friend you know uh, it's it's a light-hearted thing for it to have been based on on a little girl so evil so it's interesting to see that sort of love of this particular villain in a film that could have been lost, could have been ignored. So I'm so glad that it wasn't because it is just so well done. It's a very good film. I don't know about where it would fit in my top 10 though. One of these days, one of these days we'll hammer out a top 10 for each of us maybe. Yeah, yeah, that would be great actually because I mean, everyone knows that Halloween <laughs> 2 is going to be in there somewhere, but I, we may surprise yeah, some people. I, the only thing that I would that I would think is, like, would anyone be really surprised about some of the things that would be in our picks? Because not only have we covered a great many of them on this show, but also just in general, I feel like there's a fairly wide consensus on certain things. Although Halloween 2, that's pretty left field, like, in my opinion, because... People, I was just like, well, Halloween's right there, and you're like, Halloween too, man. I love that hot tub scene, but, but I, I, I'm, but like, I also think like there's something to be said about doing it, but then also, um, like, it, it, it changes all the time, right? Like, I change my mind where I'm like, I today I really like this, and then tomorrow I'm really about this. Like every time I watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I'm like, this is one of the greatest movies ever made. Like this fucking movie makes me so excited that I'm like shaking how fucking good this movie is. I can't believe that this movie was made. And then I don't watch it for two years and I forget that. And I'm like, yeah, I like I like TCM. I just I just forget. So it kind of depends like where I am in the moment. But let me tell you consistently consistently the ring i always mention it in some of my favorite films of all time because it not only did it not only do i think it's a perfect little story not only do i think it's immaculately acted i i, I think everything about the film is just about perfect as perfect of, of, as a ghost story can be for me personally so much so that i seek it out in other stories and like i said earlier always hold it up do i like this as much as the ring and if the answer is no then it's not that good um or if it's not within striking distance of that but also just uh, you know i i just i can't overstate how much it just sort of changed everything for my expectations in storytelling and my expectations for uh 
sorry, and also opening me up to an entire genre of film that I didn't know that I was going to fall in love with, which I didn't, I was an, uh, a suburban white kid living in Canada. I didn't, I knew Godzilla movies and I knew stuff like corny, like corny or stuff like that. Kaiju stuff, uh, Power Rangers, uh, Giver, that kind of stuff. I knew I was familiar with anime, but I didn't know that I didn't, I, I never would have watched a serious dramatic ghost story from Japan. I'd never watched that before. And it opened me up to some of my favorite movies of all time. And something that I think is, is an earmark of my particular personality into horror, which is, yeah, I like slashers and I like old stuff from like the eighties and seventies and stuff like that. But I also have a very vast knowledge of Asian horror, and that's that's the little spice that makes all of us as horror fans we're very similar. Like I said, our, all of our top tens would probably have some wild shit in it, but there'd be some consistency. But this is the one little dash of flavor for me. I feel like where I just haven't let it go. I'm still I still want the latest Tartan Asian Extreme. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it is that that spiciness. Like, where as much as I could talk about um, yeah. darker films, uh, artistic horror films, and exploitation films, I also have a, a really deep seated love of Amityville spinoffs. So, like, you, you never yeah. know. There could be an Amityville movie. In my whole top ten could be all Amityville movies. You could do a top. Literally. Was it your top fifty? And you'd still not run out of Amity. <laughs> Amity in. Yeah. That'd be that'd be that'd be the saddest fucking top fifty film. List it's ever. out there. I guarantee you that if you Google that somewhere, there's somebody who's like, I have told my top all the Amity films. Which, by the way, if you're ever curious, it has the most sequels of any horror movie ever. Um, unofficial and official. And uh, <laughs> yeah, this I only like these movies. You could watch a different Amityville movie for months and every day. <laughs> But uh, yeah, what do we got next for them, Lids? Coming up next, we have a film that has probably never been on a top 10 list ever in its existence, and that is Curtains. <laughs> Curtains is a film that I've wanted to watch for quite some time after hearing a friend talk about it on Grumpy Andrew's Horror House. It is a YouTube channel where he talks about horror film a lot. He's a big film fan. You can tell from me shoots in his living room where he's got all sorts of cool photo memorabilia and props from horror films and he talks about horror books too so yeah tune into that if you want to get prepared for us to talk about curtains yeah i'm i'm really excited to check this one out i rewatched it recently uh and gang let me tell you about the buckwild history of a movie you are not ready for you are not ready for curtains it'll be curtains for you i'll probably be saying that a few times during the recording <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it, it's great stuff. I'm super excited. And then we're going to jump back in Zhuan and, uh, and, and knock out that because again, uh, an absolutely uh, seminal film and that will be episode 200. I believe Zhuan is going to be 200, which, um, goes, which will, um, go to a little tradition here. I don't know if you've ever noticed this Liz, anytime that we hit a round number with the exception of 100, but we hit like. 50 whatever occasionally we get into these movies that absolutely scared me 
like absolutely legitimately scared me. <laughs> and uh, I, I tell people this all the time. I have never been more scared in my life sitting in a movie theater than watching The Grudge, which we'll do, but we're going to do Juwan first. Um, and there'll be a lot of overlap there. So it's very fascinating. Very fascinating. You were not alone. You were not alone in being terrified of the grudge. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it and I'm looking forward to us getting into a pocket of horror film that we keep meaning to dip into. And now we're, you know, getting to the big heavy hitters of Ring and Juwan. So I'm really happy. Uh, but we're going to take a break in the meantime and do curtains and then we'll probably do a more wintry theme. So we still have to plan something for the holly yeah. jolly Texas. Yeah, that's going to be fun. But on that note, I'm Wes Knipe. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air. Seven days. CKDJ 1079, Ottawa's new music, a Rana G blend of hip hop and alternative. Do, 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 do.